You're listening to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. Hello, everybody. We've got a brand new episode today with Dr. Britta Bushnell. That's right. She's back. We're talking about the transformative opportunity that comes with birth and parenting. In this conversation, we are cracking open cultural expectations as they relate to birth. Speaking of that, she's got a brand new book out. It's out January 28th, 2020, published by Sounds True. And the title is Transformed by Birth, Cultivating Openness, Resilience, and Strength for the Life-Changing Journey from Pregnancy to Parenthood. And since sometimes I share a little blurb um, that I might read on the back of the book of the guests that I'm interviewing, I thought I'd read one today. Here's a blurb for everybody. Transformed by Birth is the much-needed remedy for all of us striving to do motherhood right. And right is in quotes. And oh! Looky there. <laughs> That's a blurb from Elinos of Atomic Moms podcast. <laughs> um, I've been blurbed. I couldn't be more honored. This book is so special. And I, yeah, it feels so cool to have my name somehow attached to it. It really is a book that will change the lives of mothers. And singer, singer and songwriter Pink has the blurb on the front cover. So I'm basically just now two degrees of separation from Pink. What? Okay, but now back to the real star today. Dr. Britta Bushnell is a wife and mother, veteran childbirth educator, celebrated speaker, mythologist, and specialist in childbirth relationships and parenting. For over 20 years, she's worked with individuals and couples as they prepare for the life-changing experience of giving birth. Her work with parents has been enriched by her doctoral work in mythology and psychology, her years spent as a co-owner of Birthing from Within, as well as her dedicated study of solution-focused brief therapy, storytelling, and sustaining sexual vibrancy and helping romantic partnerships thrive even during parenthood. In this conversation today, I catch myself in a very unflattering moment of mom judgment. Yeah. Ugh, you guys, podcasts are very, this one in particular is a very improvisational dance between uh, guest and host. And ugh, sometimes I step in it. So I'm sharing it anyway because, you know, I'm practicing on accepting myself and, uh, you know, all my humanness. And because Britta, you know, she has really, she has a really, really, really good point of view on it that I think could help others. So there you go. I've got pie in my face, mud in my face. What am I like in the 1950s now? I'm thinking of Lucille Ball, I guess. Ugh, I just, I'm judging myself about my judgments. Anyway, other things we discuss include the ways in which we can ask for what we need from our partners. We talk about, oh, Britta shares at the end some resources for mothers who've experienced traumatic births. And we talk about our intuition and how do you know if it's your intuition versus 
you know, just the thousands of other voices in your head. (laughs) We talk about so much. So go on this wild journey with us. Again, it's an improvisational dance. I will be right back with Dr. Britta Bushnell. Thank you for coming back on Atomic Moms Podcast. I am so excited to be with you again. We had so much fun last time, the last couple of times. I'm thrilled to be here again. Okay, so since you last came on the pod, you've written a book. Yeah, no, there's been a lot. I mean, that's part of why it's sort of hard to think back and say, when were we last together? Because an entire lifetime has occurred for each of us since Mm -hmm. then. I mean, in the early days of motherhood, it's like every year feels like 10. And for me, in writing writing my book, that is true as well. I mean, I think the the seed of the book I had I already had when we were together, mm-hmm. but the process of actually putting I, I want to say pen to paper, but I didn't write it with a pen. So I guess it's more like putting fingers on a keyboard and typing out the words and really pitching it to publishers and getting an agent and just all of those parts that go into it. It's it's a lot. And now here it is. It's coming out January 28th, 2020. And it is called Transformed by Birth. And the subtitle is Cultivating Openness, Resilience, and Strength for the Life-Changing Journey from Pregnancy to Parenthood. So Transformed by Birth is the title, but the subtitle is definitely, it's got a lot in there. So I'm, I'm very excited. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of, it's been interesting because the process of writing the book and going through the publishing process, oh, and recording the audiobook, that's a whole other thing we could talk about. But it, it has connected me a lot with the content of my book because it's talking about, my book talks a lot about facing the unknown and being in uncertainty and how do you move through something that is life-changing and identity-altering. And through this process, I've been having to like take my own medicine because I've mm-hmm. been on a journey of that sort as well. Again, now, you know, my youngest is 17 years old, so it's been a while since I actually gave birth myself. But this has really kind of reconnected me with my own experience of that. I mean, I've been working with with pregnant families for two decades, but but personally, it's mm-hmm. like there's so many things that are like birth. When I was reading this now as someone who most likely won't have more children. There was so much for me in it as a human being. And it just because there are you, the way you talk about transformation does apply to, you know, putting out a book, having a loved one pass away. There are, and not only the ways that we change throughout life, but also how we can support others as they go through their messy journey and changing. I kept thinking about you, Britta, when my grandmother was passing away um, a couple of years ago. I just kept thinking about our conversation. And I got so much solace from being able to think of my grandmother passing away 
as like dark and hard as that as those times are, it, because I was able to look at it more as a transformative experience, I found some peace in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's there's something about when we connect in with darkness and and pain and suffering, not as an evil that has to be banished, but as the soil that seeds are planted in. You know, there are ways in which when we are facing our own challenges in life and being human, let's just be clear, you're going to have challenges, many of them. Some of them are going to bring you to your knees. And what do you do when you're on your knees, when you're in that place of darkness and struggle and grief? How do you hold yourself within that space? And most of us have been taught to basically berate ourselves for being there, to punish ourselves that this is not okay, that we should be other than where we are, that we shouldn't be suffering, we shouldn't be feeling grief, we shouldn't be uh, challenged by what's happening. We should be bright, bright, bright and happy, be polite, be presentable, all of those kinds of uh external, presentable, polished societal ways of being is a lot of the messaging many of us got as as young people that we then bring into our lives so that when we are facing challenge, we're unfamiliar with how to be tender with ourselves while we're facing something hard. And my book is a lot about how do you be tender with yourself during hard, challenging, transformative times, rather than expecting yourself to be, you know, put together and and chipper through the whole thing. Because deep transformation, really, that, that kind of transformation that takes over your whole identity and system is rarely done from, from an external chipper, put together kind of way. There's an unfolding, there's an, a disintegration that happens when we're going through that kind of metamorphic change. So when I have great-grandchildren someday, potentially, but we'll just pretend like I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no pressure, Sabrina and Eliza. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, but, we're already great-grandchildren, yeah. which means that well, their children's children. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just really yeah. moving right ahead. There. I have legacy people. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, kids. <laughs> so when they're in their American studies class someday mm-hmm. and they pull up this podcast and they share it proudly with their classmates, I would love for you to give them sort of a, a glimpse at what birthing in America looks like today. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So. There's there's a lot of different ways to look at this. Now, I did look at some very specific places and ideals for my book. I ended up identifying eight ideals or the those sort of societal expectations that we have that that are influencing how we behave in an unconscious way. 
it's like the water to the fish. We're not aware even that we're in it because it's it permeates kind of everything. Now, I could probably identify 25 of them, 30, 50, but I had to <laughs> had to keep it <laughs> I had to narrow it down uh to make the book a reasonable length. So, it I do just have 8. And in some ways these are things that influence all of modern uh western culture in many ways and they show up in birth and that's what i addressed in my book so the first one is sort of the the overarching idea that permeates through the other seven as well and that's the illusion of control and the desire for certainty so this one i mean we so badly want control and certainty over our lives. What has made, and and I think that that has existed for generations. That's not necessarily new. But what's new about it is that we actually believe it's attainable in a way that didn't exist in generations before. Mm -hmm. There was an acceptance that it was an illusion that you could control things. It was known that certainty didn't exist, that that there were possibilities of things going in ways that you didn't expect. Nowadays, with how technology has permeated the world, how advanced medical technology and medical care has become, these things have started to kind of influence us to believe, oh, wait, we can avoid all of these things. And there is certainty and there is predictability, but it's an illusion. And when we head into childbirth thinking that there is predictability, that there is certainty, that we can control how things happen by writing a, you know, complete enough birth plan or uh, the fact that we're given a due date and that we Put, in, put that number, that date in our head and assume that means that's when our baby will arrive. These, these sorts of things perpetuate the idea that control and certainty exist. But you and I both know as parents that certainty and control do not exist in parenthood. They don't. I mean, we are, parenthood is thrusting us into the jaws of a giant, unpredictable craziness. And we're supposed to know how to keep going with it. But somehow when we, when we are preparing for birth, we aren't looking at the fact that birth is actually the rite of passage into this thing called parenthood. And that that unpredictability and that, that lack of control and certainty are actually inherently important for us to learn how to face so that we can become the parents our children need us to be. So that's that's one of them. And, and the ways that, that control and certainty show up in modern birth are, I mean, I already listed, you know, the, the due date, the, you know, and due dates are are one of the ones that it's like it initiates us into the idea that there is certainty right from the very first appointment with our healthcare provider. We're given this date and we're mm-hmm. like, here you go. 
Here it is. And then our whole world revolves around this due date. Mm-hmm. But how many babies are actually born on their due date? You said, what, 10%, 5%? Like less than 5%. You know who was? Adam John Stekiel, my husband. (laughs) There are those who, you know, show up. And yeah, I think he's having a harder time these days with the murky, gooey mess of things. The gooey mess of being human. Being human. Oh, speaking of gooey mess of being human, my poor husband the other morning Oh, he answered the call when my daughter Eliza yelled from her room, I got poop. I got poop. He opened the door and she had a fistful of poop in her hand. <laughs> she had taken off her diaper. Yep. See, uh, and, and and we think that there's going to be control and certainty. I mean, yeah. and then your your child ends up handing you a handful of poop. Yeah. I mean, this is this or, is or the reality I, of parenthood. Sabrina, my six-year-old, she was supposed to be my Libra. And I felt like, you know, my husband's a Capricorn. I'm an Aries. And I just felt like I really did need a little Libra in my life. I think she was September 26th. And instead, she chose September 11th. And, yeah, that's a hard birthday. Yeah. And also, she's a Virgo. <laughs> Which is, like, a real challenge for yeah. me. Yes. <laughs> There you go. We're sounding so California right now, oh, aren't we? Oh, but that, but but that, but that's yes. it. Like we. Yes. So here's okay. I don't want to leave listeners hanging about what the other seven things are. We'll get but, there. Well, they can get there, um, or they can buy the book, or they can. Buy, yes, absolutely. But w- and one of the things that you share that I really want to talk about for a second in what our birthing culture is like today. With the unmedicated births or the natural births, there is this real sense of, like, control in in that, in their own way. So on Instagram, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's like, I don't know. I, I, I'm stopping myself because I don't want to be super judgmental, well, but it's very relaxed. It seems very peaceful. There's a lot of, oh, the sibling was there for the birth. See, I couldn't even say that without judgment, even though I have friends who have done that. So that's me checking myself mm-hmm. in this moment. So for me, I have a real desire to pull back the judgment about birth and to I, I actually think the the mommy wars starts well before the playground. It starts on the battlefield of birth. And I want to see us as as a as humans, as people giving birth, coming back to a place of saying, you know, there are as many ways to give birth as there are births happening. And the Ideals that I address are influencing not just hospital births or medicated births or technologically supported births, but also the impulse to birth from home, birth in water, birth, you know, there's, they, they infiltrate both sides of the polarization in birth. And sometimes that the home birth, the, the birth without um, medical support or without pain medicine 
and it has an element of the desire to control it mm-hmm. to be to keep it from being controlled by others but it's still influenced by the desire to control it and make it fit into a box and i think that it's it's really important to do the work that we need to do as as parents heading into birth to know what it is that matters to us, what our values are as individuals, and then choose the location to birth that matches best with our personal values and desires. Then there's a certain element of letting go. There is a certain element of now I have to find my way into the experience that is going to be mine. Whatever that looks like, however that unfolds. And so, yes, for some, that's in a bathtub with another child watching mm-hmm. and and having having uh, breathing sounds that sound orgasmic. And for others, it's screaming and moaning. For some, it's in the car on the way to their intended birth location. For some, it's on an operating table. There's, there's not one right way because we are complex humans. And finding spaciousness within our hearts and within our own judgments to get curious about how did that work for you? What happened there? Or what is my birth going to be like? To me, that's the antidote is curiosity. It's like and what would happen to our culture as as parents, as moms to be able to just have curiosity about what matters to somebody else rather than pulling along our suitcase of judgments that we unpack as they tell us their story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a different kind of thing. It's like tell me what happened. How did you know that was the right thing for you to do? How did you know that that what mattered to you was having your your firstborn child there? Like that's that's a big thing to decide. So tell me how you how you came to that decision. What was that like for you? Those are the questions mm-hmm. that I want us to be asking each other. I love that. My my book and and my work is a lot about expanding and opening to that which we cannot control mm-hmm. or predict for ourselves as well as for those around us and who are important to us. And also providing the space to know that that everyone responds so differently. Like it is such an individualized experience and each time is different as well. And I think when I just because part of me is like spinning in fear about seeming judgmental towards my friends who have had siblings at their births. And for me, um, and that feels crappy because I don't want to be that way. But also because I am putting, and this is probably something that goes into the mommy wars too. It's like I'm putting myself in their position. Like I'm not seeing that they have a completely different experience and how they react and relate during birth is completely different to how 
I do as an animal myself. And like I was with Eliza, I've shared that it was a four-hour birth start to finish. And I was, it was so animalistic. And I was very, I mean, I kind of took my husband back a little bit. He was like, wow. Because I was telling her, like, get out of the room. It was like a lioness. Mm-hmm. And so for me, so I'm putting that there, even though this is like someone so, else's own story. But I'm like, well, I wouldn't have my kid there because I would have. Right. And so here's the It wouldn't place, have been safe for her. Right. And But here's the place that, that you are acknowledging that awareness that you have about where that judgment arises from or where that inkling. And then you acknowledge it and you said, oh, wow, look at that. I have a little bit of a of a a judgment or a prejudice here mm-hmm. that is born from my own experience, which is where they come from, right? Judgments often come birthed from our own experiences. And then I think it's the judgment is actually linked to my own self-judgment, which is that— I was just <sighs> getting there. Exactly. It's and that, so, like, why can't I have the damn Zen birth right. of, like— Petals in the water right. where I'm not throwing up. And that's, and that's often, right? That's often I mean, I did have that with my first. come from. I had that with my first. I did get a more, I didn't throw up with my first birth. <laughs> but but to, to then take that as an opportunity to practice that self-kindness. Mm-hmm. You know, you just did a beautiful thread. We followed verbally your thread of, of where that judgment comes from. And so often our judgments of others come from judgments of self. And so if we can take a moment and turn the Mm self-talk from being judgment-based, which is that I could have, I should have, I could never have done that, whatever the voice of our inner judging self, which Mm -hmm. we all have loud ones at different times in our lives, but to to listen to that and then go, ah, and just exhale with it and almost wrap up in our mommy arms that that tender little person inside us who's sad or upset or is bummed that they didn't get the experience mm. that somebody else did and to to hold that part of us tenderly and say yeah whew, you you really wanted something different that's going to resonate with so many of our listeners. Yeah, it's just pausing and giving. Know that so much of the, the judgment that goes outward is really what we need is tenderness to ourselves and to give space for the emotion that we're feeling are in our own body. So often, because we want to have this put-together, organized kind of life, we we expect that we're only going to have one emotion at a time. And we are way more complex than that. Mm-hmm. And so to just be in that place of, oh, yeah, in your ideal world, something else would have been what it would have been. And it's okay to have, to want that. I'm probably driving everyone crazy. But I will also say that that ideal world, I also have to check because I think that is also what you talk about, about being sort of the ideal world of what culture puts on us about yeah. what we should expect or want and what makes me so fiercely uh, just like loving your book and the work that you do is that you're the only person that I know, and I've read probably more parenting books than 
I mean, anyone really (laughs) (laughs) with this podcast. I mean, come on. It started in 2014. I've read a lot of books. You've read a lot of books. read a lot of books. You feel like the advocate for that birthing part of myself that was fierce and animalistic and knew what she needed and could clear the space. Yep. That could say, out of here. Yeah. And that's not who I generally am. And so can you talk to us about— Well, that's the third ideal that that you're kind of speaking to. Okay. Is it okay to skip the second? Well, the second second one one is uh, inundation of of intellectual knowledge as opposed to wisdom Mm -hmm. and technology. That— that fact that we so highly value, we venerate mm-hmm. technology and intellectual wisdom. And that shows up in a lot of different ways rather than our own inner voice. It's like we've gotten to a point where we can barely even hear our inner voice because our heads are so crammed with information from the internet and from people and, you know, experts and all of that. It's like, People say, well, what does your instinct say? And we're like, I don't know. Do I have one? Mm-hmm. You know, because we've we've gotten, ha- we've had a harder time accessing it. And because the inner voice, the intuition rarely sounds certain. And because it rarely sounds certain, we often dismiss it rather than really drop in and listen to it because we crave certainty. And so... So that that's ideal number two. Okay, I'm really loving ideal number two. I know we were going to move on to three. I know, but give me two seconds, Britta. We'll get to three. Okay, yeah. Number two, I love that you're like providing structure for this episode. Um. (laughs) The book did. Believe me, it was all over the place, but it was. I had to to find my threads through it. That's the joy of of writing a book when you're a storyteller and you go off in a thousand different directions. I know. I I, it is a labyrinth. Yes. Um, So you okay. With intuition, though, and you're saying that it's a little voice, it doesn't sound certain. How do you differentiate it from your 20 neurotic voices that also don't sound certain? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things, but I think it's a practice. I mean, the, the first thing, and I share this in the book, is about inserting a pause in the place when a question arises. So when a question arises in new parenthood, the impulse that many of us have is to pull out our phones and Google it, right? We do an internet search. We're like, oh, I don't know. What should be happening right now at week three? And before we move to that impulse to get information, whether it's on our phones or on the internet or calling our doctor or checking in with, you know, our grandmother or parent or some dear friend who just had a baby, we, we need to start inserting a pause where we actually sit in the place of not knowing, where we sit in the question itself. And that pause helps us to start to differentiate the energy of, of the, those inner voices. That pause of, okay, what is that saying? What is it I need to know right now? That's what happens after you pause. You ask 
yourself. Okay, what is what is this place, this curi- this moment of curiosity, this moment of wonder asking for? And where is the be- best place for me to get that information? And when we pause and then ask ourselves those questions as a practice, this isn't something that's going to just magically appear. It's like inserting a pause when we have the place of the question is like a daily, probably 60 times a day practice that is akin to a personal growth practice or a spiritual practice or an exercise practice where we want to strengthen a particular muscle. In this case, the muscle is letting ourselves sit in wonder and pause with the inner voice. Once you do that, it becomes a little bit easier to be like, oh, that voice, that's that's just my anxiety talking. That voice, that's my judge. You know, I, I like to name them because mm-hmm. that works for me. And once I can do that, I can be like, oh, and this voice, this is my curiosity. This, ooh, curiosity is another name for my intuition. If an inner voice is curious about learning something more or curious about uh, how I'm feeling about something, that's often the same thing as the, as the intuition. I'm so glad we didn't plow through two. <laughs> Okay, number three. (laughs) Okay, so number three. Number three is, you know, and and your listeners who heard me last time know that that I love mythology. I am a doctor of mythology, so I can help you with your mythological problems. So number three dives into some of the mythology. And I speak about how there's there's a pairing in Greek mythology between Apollo and Artemis. They're twins. And for my purposes in the book, they are really beautiful metaphors for culture and nature because Artemis is the wild. She is everything that happens outside the confines of civilized culture, whereas Apollo is everything that is about civilized culture, everything, civilization, well-cultured, polite society. He's a sun god. She's a moon moon goddess. There's, I mean, I, I go into it in great depths, and I can geek out on these two to no end. But the third value is how in this Apollonian culture that is about uh, brightness and putting it together and happy, happy, happy and be well preserved and civilized and pleasant that birth and new parenthood tosses us into Artemis's realm. And that can be a little uh, uncomfortable because it's wild. It's unpredictable. It's messy. She's down in the dirt. She's like living with the animals. And we we need a balancing energy between these two twins. Often in mythology and fairy tales, when there are twins, they're meant to be sort of viewed as two parts of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so we there's great value in the gifts of Apollonian culture. Yeah. 
around birth. There's there's gifts in medicine that save babies and parents on a regular basis. But birth itself, the the wild animalistic nature of the body is not well put together and cultured. It's it's that wild outside the bounds of culture side. It's unpredictable. It's messy. It can be screaming and and writhing and moaning that brings us into our animal self that can be surprising when we have valued as the pinnacle all that is Apollonian. And it can throw us some curveballs that can can breed judgment. You spoke about your birth and about screaming and, you know, writhing and needing to be private. Those are the energies of Artemis. Yeah, she deserves her shout out. Oh, and I feel like in. But that doesn't mean we push Apollo aside and be like, all we need is Artemis. No, we need we need to find that marriage of the two. They each have gifts. Yes. At different times in different moments. What is the reason that I really speak about Artemis a little bit more is because she's the balancing energy that modern culture often needs. And has neglected. Especially. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And has neglected. Not only has it neglected, it's vilified it. Yeah, I think some of the people at Cedar Sinai Hospital were a little surprised that Artemis showed up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hospitals are often, in many ways, temples to Apollonian values. Mm -hmm. But it was really cool. And afterwards, I did have a lot of nurses come up to me. I mean, this is the (laughs) so classic LA. Like, I need the validation. The nurses being like, wow, that was so cool. I'd never seen something like that. Yeah. I was like, awesome. It's interesting to me that you're sharing this work at this particular moment in time because there was recently an article in the New York Times called The Wild Woman Awakens. Mm -hmm. And it was about how the 1992 book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, um, it came out in 1992 and it's really having a resurgence. I had seen it on Instagram. So then, of course, I bought it. And I was loving it. And I feel like there is a real thirst yes. for yeah, the the unbidden that you spoke, have spoken of, of the wildness and reconnecting with that in ourselves. Yes. I, I have studied with the Women Who Run With the Wolves author, Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, on a few occasions. And she's definitely one of my mentors in this work. And I was gifted that book by my now mother-in-law back before uh, before I was married to my husband. And it the way that that book helps to kind of speak to that wild side that in my book I refer to really as that Artemisian side. And I, I love I love that book. I've actually done circles. I've been trained by her to lead groups for women going through sort of the book and the stages and the various things. And I've, oh, I love it. So that's the amazing. fact that she just showed up on, in our room with us together here I know, is that's so, so great. And I also, I'm patting myself on the back for the homework. Though. Yeah, look at you. <laughs> no, but I didn't know that yeah. you had that connection with yeah. her. No, um, but it, I love her. But it is having this resurgence. Yes. And so we are all hungry for this. 
there's a lot of energy going on right now of I'm done being the put together socially acceptable package. I'm I'm ready to be more in my animal body and that means there's going to be times when I'm vicious and times when I'm unpleasant and yet that is not only okay it's part of my right as a human it's part of my life force and I need to release my life force and Many, many women are coming together with other women to be able to express that and be in it more. And I think that's amazing and getting out into nature. Nature is a wonderful place to connect with that untamed side of us, that untamed animal side of ourselves. And that that part can be very helpful for us to be connected with as we head into birth and new parenthood, because both of those experiences, both going through labor and postpartum, are untamed experiences. And even following through into toddlerdom, it's so untamed. And so my own ability to accept that part of myself is so helpful when my child is down on the ground writhing and shouting and screaming. Yes. And now I'll just be like, oh, there's my little Artemis. Yeah. Toddlerhood teaches us so much about how to hold space for the untamed. And to if if we can use those experiences of tantrums with however old our child is as an opportunity to go, oh, what is it they need in this moment? And then learn from that and bring it back to ourselves when we next have an inner tantrum or an outer tantrum and give ourselves some of that. Because for many of us, I'll speak, well, for me, it's always been easier to hold space for my children's tantrums than it's been for me to hold space for my own and to be kind with my own tantrum. And so to use those experiences, that's part of why I think Parenthood, birth, all of this is a profound personal growth practice. It's a profound opportunity Mm -hmm. for deep work and change that that when I'm with them and they're having a, a, a total breakdown and I'm tender with that, I can be in that place of, ah, okay, how do I show up for them? Now, how do I bring that for myself the next time I'm having a meltdown? What what voices, what words are coming out of my mouth with my child? Mm-hmm. Okay, when I'm next having it, I'm going to bring those words out for me. That makes sense? 100%. Speaking of tantrums, you do share advice in the book about relationship support. And... There are ways to minimize tantruming potential, (laughs) but I'm a really critical person, and it's something that comes up a lot, and I have a hard time softening that. So, I mean, even if it's not a birthing situation and it's just 
a Tuesday, <laughs> like <laughs> I can be pretty cut and dry with things. So how might someone like me um, offer suggestions in a way that might be more readily received? Yes. Well, ideal number five, we skipped four, <laughs> but ideal number five is about that uh, ideal that, that we're supposed to go it alone. This ideal of independence. I mean, it's baked into the you know, fabric of the background of the U.S., mm-hmm. but it's it's it permeates outward beyond even just you know the the United States. That ideal that we're if we can go it alone, we should. And I think that sets parents up for a lot of struggle to believe they have to do it on their own, all on their own, and. And yet what tends to happen with that is it's linked with the eighth ideal that I talk about, which is the quest for perfection. We show up with our partners and we're like, okay, so I will let you help me. Uh, you, you can come in and you can support me, but you have to be perfect. You have to do it exactly right. And that is such a tall order. Mm-hmm. We actually, as individuals, often have a really hard time receiving help. And so we point our finger outward at our partner and say they're not doing it right, when in fact it's a dance and both players have steps to learn. And so I like to turn some of the focus back on the birthing parent and saying, okay, what is it? How do you receive the positive intention of your partner? How do you receive their good intentions? And so... One of the, getting back to the, like, the tips and suggestions, one of the things is when, when a partner supports us, when we're giving them feedback, always start with what's working first. Now, I will share with you that this works well beyond prepping for childbirth. Even to this day, if I have a correction or a some kind of adjustment I want my husband to make. And we've been together 26 years, so so we've been at this a long time. It's always going to land better if I start with what he did that worked, what he did that helped, what he did that, that was supportive or um, beneficial for our family unit before I launch into the critical. And like you, it's very easy for me to get into the critical. It's very easy. And so I've had to make it a practice to be like, thank you for doing these dishes, you know. And I hate that whole thing, like we even have to say thank you for doing the dishes. But I now expect my husband to thank me for doing the dishes as well. Like I'm, I'm, I don't want to not thank him because I'm not getting thanked. I want us to have a place where we are honoring the, the contributions we're each giving. But I'm using the dishes because I have a different standard for dish cleaning than my husband does. And so this is a place where this can come in. Um, Maybe that will resonate for other people. But when he thinks all the kitchen is done and cleaned, I walk in and I'm like, I don't know what he's thinking. This is so not clean. But to go right into, you know, 
do you see that there's still food craps? <laughs> food craps. Food scraps. <laughs> there are food craps too, but food scraps on the counter. Like, do you not see that? If I do that, it totally washes away the effort he did make. And and it it just doesn't make him want to do more of it. And frankly, I want him to do more dishes. So mm-hmm. I'm wanting to acknowledge what did work for me because what you acknowledge where you put your attention grows. So that's why I'll be like, wow, you put all the dishes in the dishwasher. Thank you so much. This this looks really good. So next time, to do it even better, can you also wipe down the counters? That is a different kind of feedback. It gives him an opportunity to grow in in pleasing me rather than feeling like nothing he does is enough. Mm-hmm. And that shows up when we're practicing for labor. You know, someone tries, a partner tries to support, you know, with touch and words. And the birthing parents like, ugh, like don't touch me. Don't, don't use those words. Don't, da, 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 yeah. da, you know. Which then ends up making the partner be like, well, pff, I'm out. out. Yeah. I'm out. There's nothing I can do. And instead, if we really want them to grow in both their confidence that they can support you, as well as their competence at actually being able to support you, we need to engage with them knowing that part of the work is our own. You talk in the book about going from being basically growing up being the adult mm-hmm. when you become the parent and i was talking to my virtual production assistant a few weeks ago sort of about like what is the message of atomic moms or like what am i attracted to sharing or what what matters to me and I was, like, question. I was like, this is a podcast for grown-ass women. Like, that's what came to me. And, and that's required of me. And I, to be able to, you know, stand up for my daughters. Yes. And that is something that has shifted for me since I started the podcast. Like, I feel so much more like I've grown into that. And my birth experiences certainly helped plant those roots for me. And with your writing, you lay it all out for us, including what you can say to your doctor if your labor's not progressing. You share like epidurals and like what goes into that. And it's that's it's not fear-based. It's like, oh, actually, here's the information that as grown-ass women, we require. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you're so beautifully guiding us through the book because you just got to ideal six, <laughs> <laughs> which is about becoming somebody's parent. And that maturation that is necessary, that we have to pop the bubble of innocence that we have been raised in up to this point for many of us. And part of becoming a grown-ass woman, part of becoming 
somebody's parent is to step into that place of, oh, I need to advocate for myself and for my child. It's like, I have to advocate for my child until my child can advocate for themselves. You know, I'm on the other end of that spectrum now, now that my children are 18 and 19. Um, But there's a lot of advocating. You can't just go in it with innocence to life and be like, oh, whatever, whatever. No, because you're going to need to advocate. You're going to need to advocate for your child. Um, you're going to need to to discuss things with teachers and pediatricians and coaches and whoever else your child interacts with who has their best interest at heart, but whose strategies may be different than those that align with yours. And how do you navigate that? And stepping into that power, that mama bear that you spoke about, is part of the the process of becoming a parent. And how do we do that in birth and in postpartum in a way that helps wake awaken that part of ourselves? And sometimes some of that is also with our family of origin. Because I share about how there's like this archetypal wheel in the family. And before you have a child, you are in the spot of the child. And your parent is in the spot of the parent. And if their parent still exists, they're in the spot of the grandparent. But when a baby comes into the family, all of those positions rotate. The child now becomes the parent. You know, you as the parent now become the parent, and your parent becomes the grandparent. And that can feel kind of uh, uncomfortable and can cause some gear grinding, I like to call it, in families. Because those who used to be parents, who are now grandparents, are used to being in the position of authority. And now that they've been booted into the position of grandparent and you have stepped into the position of parent, there's a a shifting energy for our parents, but also for ourselves, where we're like, we look around and we're like, oh, who gets to make this decision? I'm the parent? Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) I used to be the child. Yeah, now you're the parent. And all that comes with that is an important piece of that stepping into that maturation. It doesn't mean you can't still be silly and goofy and playful and youthful. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm speaking about that maturation of grounded position of this is my role. And part of my role is advocating on behalf of my family, my child or children and myself. And that doesn't come from hiding out in innocence and ignoring that hardship might come. That comes from popping the bubble of innocence and stepping fully into the full reality of what may come your way in labor, birth, and new parenthood. Before we close out, I do want to give some sort of 
resource to parents that did have traumatic birth experiences. Mm -hmm. And you speak about it in the book, and I'm hoping that you can share something for them right now. Yeah, I mean, I I think that there's a lot of, oh, there's so much to say on that topic and probably too much to share in a closing, but I will share. <laughs> Way to go, Ellie. <laughs> My, um, hang on. <laughs> I do think that there's, one of the things that tends to happen with traumatic births is is that they're often missed expectations. And when we have a feeling that we didn't get what we desired or what we wanted, that that can be often something that we then play Monday morning quarterback about our birth saying, I woulda, shoulda, coulda. I should have done something that I didn't. I, I could have done X, Y, Z. That would have made the difference. And we turn often the blame on ourselves or on others. And I think it's valuable to come to that place of knowing that in the throes of something like labor, where we are hormonally driven and deeply in our animalistic self, that sometimes our orienting principles that we are used to being able to use and rely upon aren't accessible to us. And so we, even if we want to say something, sometimes we are not able to say it. And then later, when we're in our put together, not hormonally swamped mind, we go, why didn't I just X, Y, Z? Well, we didn't because we couldn't. We couldn't in the state that we were in. So that's a tiny bit. And then I would really encourage people who have had a traumatic birth to reach out and get support. And there are some people who are trained in the method that one of my most important mentors, Pam England, created, which is called birth story medicine. And there are practitioners all over the place who have been trained in this or people who do it even online for people who are, you know, not near a practitioner in their own hometown, but that can actually do some birth story medicine, like it says. And so I think the the uh, website is birthstorymedicine.com. And that those people who have been trained in that modality have some skills to offer with regard to what I've just been sharing as well about that inner judgment that can show up that is often at the root of the brute the birth trauma is so often birth trauma, the the core story is I'm a bad parent, I'm a bad mother. And to find to head back into that and pull that and heal that is often what's necessary. Britta, I don't want this hour to end. Thank <laughs> you. You and I can just keep talking and talking and talking. It's so easy to talk with you. And I'm so grateful to be back here with you. And we're both beaming, you know, ear to ear here because it's it it feels really good. Thank you so much for having me here. Where can all of our listeners <laughs> find you? Well, my book 
is a great place. So that's Transformed by Birth, and it's out January 28th, 2020. Brag about your publisher. Brag about my publisher. My publisher is Sounds True, who is a wonderful publisher for really growth-focused titles. And so I feel really good about being with them. And they also, one of the, I mean, I've known about them for years back in the day when I would buy things from them in cassette form. That tells you how long they've been around. Um, Because they they do specialize a lot in in audio as well as print. And so I'm very excited that my audio book is being published the same day as the paperback. Mm. Um, So Sounds True has been fantastic, as has my agent. I've just, I've had a really wonderful, wonderful team around me. And then if you want to follow me on Instagram, my handle is Britta, B-R-I-T-T-A, Bushnell, B-U-S-H-N-E-L-L, Ph-D. So it's Britta Bushnell, Ph-D. And I also have uh, that on Facebook as well, uh, same handle, Britta Bushnell, Ph-D. I have a online community that is Transformed by Birth community on Facebook. It's a private group. And I'm launching a podcast that is called Transformed with Britta Bushnell that is not just about birth, but is about transformation in the broader sense. So I got lots of things going on right now. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you. It's really a treat to be here with you. Thank you for all that you do and share with the world. It's making a difference. Okay, listeners, if you appreciate conversations like this one, please rate, review, and subscribe to Atomic Moms Podcast. And then please leave a written review. It can just be a few quick sentences. It helps new moms find us, and it energizes me to see that what we're creating here is positively impacting your life or keeping you company. We love reading them. And by we, I mean me, but then it just feels very (laughs) self-serving for me to say I. Special thanks to our production assistant, Olivia Hasty, to our sound engineer, Owen O'Neill, our original theme music by Jeremy Turner. Follow along with us on social media, on Facebook, and on Instagram at Atomic Moms. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms. 